So welcome back to this makeshift lecture theatre, a small corner of County Durham that is serving today as part of Gresham College. There's maybe something fitting about this because our subject in this last lecture of this series on religious atrocities in the age of the Reformation is about victims who were denied the limelight, who didn't receive the full on-stage treatment in their own time. One of the features of atrocities that we've seen again and again is that not all victims are equal. Some, only a few really, of those who died untimely deaths in the 16th and 17th centuries, died in just such a way that their deaths were useful to their contemporaries and their successors. Those deaths could be made into myths. They helped to populate the world with heroes and villains, to warn successive generations against lowering their guard, or to train them in self-sacrificial virtue, or indeed to remind them of why some truths could never be compromised. Meanwhile, most of the dead were passed over in silence, because no one or not enough people had a point that they wanted to use them to make. Stalin supposedly said that a single death is a tragedy and a million a statistic, but neither is an atrocity, not until somebody makes it one, by deciding who needs to be celebrated, who needs to be blamed, and what lessons the survivors and successors of the dead should draw. And as we've seen throughout this series, the making of atrocities never stands still. Some fade into memory, like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Other atrocities that were once terrifying become the stuff of jokes, like the Spanish Inquisition. But in this final lecture, I want to look at atrocities that have made the opposite journey. The victims whose sufferings were neglected in their own time, but whose memories become more significant as the years have passed. Some of these we've already noticed. For example, very few Christians in the 15th or 16th century were troubled by the executions of thousands of Jews and Christianized Jews by the Spanish Inquisition, while the same tribunal's execution of dozens of Protestants became notorious. It's only in modern times that that balance has been redressed. But today I want to focus on two other cases, contrasting and maybe also connected. These are the stories of the Anabaptists and of the witches. The Reformation of the 16th century is conventionally the process by which some European Christians became Protestants while others stayed Catholic. But Protestant was a big and quarrelsome category. As well as the major coherent groups that emerged from the schism, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, there were a great many smaller splinters, groups of dissenters who modern historians tend to call the Radical Reformation, and who at the time were lumped together, rather inaccurately, under the umbrella term Anabaptists. These were a very eclectic set of groups, but the conviction that they shared was that Martin Luther's Reformation hadn't gone far enough that Luther and his allies had settled for superficial changes to the church, when in fact nothing less than a wholesale remaking of Christian society was called for. These groups read the New Testament, saw that it described the church as a small select group of dedicated believers, surrounded by a hostile pagan world, passionately dedicated to Christian living, sharing everything that they owned with each other, rejoicing in persecution, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which manifested itself in visions, prophecies, miracles, and fired by the expectation of Christ's imminent return. And then they compared that biblical vision to the church of their own times, and they found it utterly unrecognisable. And so in different ways, they set about trying to recreate that original vision as best they could. The name Anabaptist came from one of the most fundamental concerns that united most of the radicals, not all of them. This was that the practice of baptism, the fundamental Christian sacrament of initiation, had become hopelessly corrupt. The New Testament only ever describes the baptism of adults, 
who've made a conscious and deliberate profession of faith, never of infants or children, although it does with unhelpful ambiguity talk about whole households being baptized. Still, this idea of believer's baptism made intuitive sense to the radicals. How could you be part of a select, passionate group of Christians unless you'd deliberately chosen to join it? And what ritual other than a baptism would be sufficient to mark the shattering conversions that the radicals themselves had experienced? But if there was one thing on which all Christians agreed, and surprisingly, this is something which, as far as I know, has never been seriously challenged by any Christian sect. If there was one thing on which everyone agreed, it's that baptism is a once-in-a-lifetime event. It is as unrepeatable as birth itself. So if you are baptized as an adult, and from 1525 onwards, some radicals began to do this, you are necessarily renouncing and denouncing the event that happened when you were a newborn, when a priest sprinkled you with water and mumbled some Latin words. That was not, it could not be, a true Christian baptism. And so you were necessarily saying that most of the so-called Christian society around you in fact consisted of unbaptized heathens. Martin Luther himself, no less than any of the others. Whereas, of course, to that majority, you looked as if you were desecrating this once-in-a-lifetime sacrament by a farcical repetition of it. Hence the label Anabaptist. It literally means a rebaptizer. It's a term for people who have chosen to put themselves beyond the pale. So this isn't simply about a dispute over the correct age at which baptism should be administered. The heart of the radicals' view of baptism was choice. Some would choose baptism as believing adults, and others would not. So the very notion of Christendom, of a universal or a national church to which everybody belonged by default, became an impossibility. Christians on this view were bound to be a subgroup, in all likelihood a small minority, sedulously separated from the godless society around them. So you can perhaps see where the majority left behind. The Catholics and the more conventional Protestants would feel not only insulted, but also threatened. The radicals were questioning the whole nature of Christian society. It was a deeply frightening thing to do in a world which took for granted the idea of the body politic, of the fundamental unity knitting society together. And nor did it end with baptism. For example, many radicals refused to swear oaths on the grounds that a strict reading of the New Testament forbids it. But swearing oaths was an indispensable part of life in pre-modern Europe. Refusing to swear your oath was like refusing to sign your name or to provide your identity would be today. It made it impossible for anyone else to do business with you or to trust you. If that still sounds a little abstract, then consider the apocalyptic violence, which some radicals embraced. The so-called Peasants' War, the huge rural rebellion which convulsed Germany in 1524-5, wasn't driven by Protestant radicals, but it did have some very visible radical leaders, and they ended up as scapegoats for the whole affair. People who had wanted to turn a spiritual and theological revolution into a political and social one too. The rebellion was defeated, apocalyptic peasant risings usually are, but one of the effects of the defeat was to radicalize the survivors. Surely Christ's return and their vindication was near. If only they could keep the flame burning or pour oil on it and see how far they could make it spread. The result was the event which in its own time became the best known atrocity of the age. The story which for well over a century made the Western German city of Münster into a, into a byword to scare children. In 1532, the city's pastor and several of its leading citizens were converted to Anabaptism. 
like-minded believers from across the region converged there and succeeded in taking over the city's government. A Dutch baker named Jan Mathis prophesied that Münster was the new Jerusalem to which Christ would imminently return. Over a thousand adults accepted baptism. They threw the bishop out and began to muster an army. The bishop laid siege to the city in 1534, and Mathis was killed in a suicidal sortie early on in the siege. But one of his comrades, a tailor named Jan Bockelson, was now proclaimed king. Within his besieged Jerusalem, he set about building the new world. Private property was abolished, including the property relationship known as marriage. Polygamy was legalized. Bockleton himself led the way by taking 16 wives. When one of them crossed him, he apparently beheaded her himself in public. The sense that all households were dissolved and that Bockleton himself was the city's father was reinforced by his insistence that he himself would choose the names of every newborn child. After a year-long siege, the city was finally overrun. Bockelson and his fellow prophets were tortured and executed. The gibbets in which their bodies were displayed still hang from the cathedral tower. And the city became a tale of horror, which showed why fanatics and enthusiasts could never be given an inch. You could still find preachers well over a century later on the other side of Europe who were referring simply to Münster without needing to explain what they meant. Like all the best atrocities, the memory kept burning. As so often, however, the atrocity mongers were fighting the last war. After the Münster debacle, a handful of Anabaptist bitter enders did continue with sporadic terrorist attacks. But most Anabaptists took the catastrophe as eloquent proof that Bockelson and his disciples had gone disastrously wrong. The future of Anabaptism was symbolised by a very different figure, the Dutch priest Menno Simons, who was radicalised by his brother's death during the Battle for Münster. Early in 1536, Simons abandoned his priesthood and sought a new baptism, but he would be an Anabaptist of another kind. The Mennonite movement that he founded wouldn't preach revolution and war, but withdrawal and pacifism. The Mennonites didn't speak for everyone. Even the Mennonites themselves rapidly splintered into a dizzying array of different groups. But from the mid-1530s, most of them had one thing in common. They forswore violent revolution. They aimed to create pacifist, self-governing communities, which asked nothing more of the world around them than to be left alone. And so, of course, in return, they were persecuted with unrelenting fear and hatred as the successors of Münster. We know of over 2,000 Anabaptists executed as heretics or blasphemers in Europe before 1560, almost double the number of mainstream Protestants who were burned for heresy, although the radicals were, of course, far less numerous. Catholic bishops and regimes persecuted Anabaptists, especially in Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands. After all, from the Catholic point of view, they were heretics just like other Protestants. But Protestant governments of most stripes were equally energetic in pursuing them. German Anabaptists were no less liable to be persecuted in Lutheran than in Catholic territories. Martin Luther insisted that he respected freedom of belief, but that it was his duty to punish blasphemy. That's a distinction without a difference. The very first executions for Anabaptism that we know of took place in the Protestant cantons of Switzerland. So did the most notorious single killing, the execution of the Spanish radical Miguel Servetus in Geneva in 1553, notorious chiefly because of John Calvin's starring role in the proceedings. It wasn't especially controversial at the time. Calvin, who was aware that Civitas was notorious and that the world was watching him, carefully canvassed opinion from a wide range of Protestant theologians, and they agreed with him that Civitas both deserved death and had to be silenced. The execution was as much a political as a legal and an ethical decision. 
Calvin was well aware that Catholics used the bogeyman of Münster and of radicalism to discredit more conservative reformers like himself. In order to convince Christendom that he stood for scholarly, moderate, pious reform, drawing a clear line between himself and the radicals was an urgent necessity. And what better way to draw it than in their own blood? In fact, the more a Protestant country proclaimed that it was moderate, the more enthusiastically it persecuted Anabaptists. A succession of English kings declared themselves to be reasonable and moderate in religion, and they produced the body counts to prove it. During the late 1530s, dozens of suspected Anabaptists, most of them Dutch immigrants, were executed by Henry VIII and his reformist chief minister, Thomas Cromwell a fact which Hilary Mantel, I'm afraid, chose to leave out of her recent account. King Edward VI, aggressively Protestant government, stopped executing people for loyalty to the Pope, but it did burn two Protestant radicals as heretics. The last burnings for heresy in England took place in 1612 under King James I, a king who gloried in his reputation for learning and for religious inclusion. And if the burnings stopped thereafter, persecution didn't. The English Civil War and Republic in the mid-17th century brought radical groups to this country on a new scale, the most hated and feared of them being the Quakers, who believed neither an in infant nor adult baptism. They rejected the entire sacrament as an empty ritual. They also rejected all hierarchies and churches preached a terrifyingly extreme equality and generally, not absolutely, embraced pacifism. They claimed to have Christ dwelling within them to such an extent that in some sense, they actually were Christ. Notoriously, the Quaker preacher James Naylor rode into Bristol in 1656 as his companions cast their cloaks on the road and sang hosannas. Naylor was prophetically claiming that Christ's ministry was continued through him. That was the spirit in which his wife wrote him a letter saying, Thy name is no more to be called James, but Jesus. But for virtually everyone else in England, this was the most outrageous blasphemy. Naylor was controversially spared execution, but he was branded, had a hole bored through his tongue with a hot iron, and was sentenced to two years hard labour. He died not long after his release. After King Charles II's restoration in 1660, the crackdown on Quakers became systematic. Those years were long remembered by them as the Great Persecution, although the only actual executions were in Puritan New England. Like the Mennonites before them, the Quakers experienced persecution which only intensified as their behaviour became less threatening. The community's own records have it that over 10,000 Quakers suffered imprisonment during the period from 1660 to 1689, and over 300 died in prison. Only after 1689 did they find a grudging toleration. Like the Anabaptists, the Quakers only found one place where they were truly free, that is, the American colonies, especially the Quaker-founded colony of Pennsylvania which also became an Anabaptist refuge. Very few people outside the persecuted communities of radicals saw any of this as an atrocity. The commemoration and celebration of these waves of sufferings was left entirely to the persecuted communities themselves. Communities which didn't often have easy access to printing presses or Indeed, the settled security needed to produce substantial books. In the later 16th century, while Protestants and Catholics were producing weighty martyr books, Anabaptists were only managing occasional short pamphlets. Often their stories were handed down by word of mouth, with martyrological songs being a regular part of the community's life. I won't attempt to sing one, but I will show you one of these early books, The Sacrifice of the Lord first published illegally in 1562, a tiny 16-mo copy, smaller than your hand, 
which then ran through at least 12 editions in Dutch during the rest of the century. This expanded one dates from 1578, and as you can see from the fancy dual-colour title page, it was a relatively luxury edition. But it wasn't until the more peaceful days of the later 17th century that the definitive Anabaptist martyrology was produced. The Martyr's Mirror, a Dutch production, but with universal coverage tracing the tradition of non-violent Christian defiance and suffering from the apostles to their own time. Here I'm showing you the 1685 edition for the simple reason that it was sumptuously illustrated. And these pictures, drawings produced with all the vivid humanity of the Dutch Golden Age, became an important part of its appeal. There are a great many burnings, such as this mass execution in Salzburg in 1528. There are more idiosyncratic deaths, such as this drowning from 1552. Or there are dignified but unsparing depictions of torture. In this one from 1570, the victim, if that's the right word, could almost be in a rapture of prayer, her eyes fixed on heaven, even her feet lifted off the ground. There are interrogation scenes like this one, which visually contrast the simple innocence of the Anabaptist to the ruffs and the ornaments of his persecutors. Or there are vivid depictions of the moment of arrest. You can feel the movement in this image of the baker suddenly spotting his inquisitors at the door. Others show the ingenuity of Anabaptists remaining faithful under persecution, such as this group who put to sea together to worship in a boat. And then there's this one, the most famous of all, the iconic story of Dirk Willems, who in 1569 was arrested as an Anabaptist in his native Gelderland in the Netherlands. According to the story, he escaped from the bishop's prison with a rope that he'd made from rags and fled across a frozen pond to escape. A guard pursued him, but where the half-starved and unencumbered fugitive had been able to cross safely, his heavily armed pursuer fell through the ice. Whereupon Willems turned back and pulled the man from the water, saving his life. But the delay, of course, meant that the other pursuers caught up with him. He was rearrested and executed by burning on the 16th of May, 1569. That tale of peace, mercy, self-sacrifice and love for enemies summed up everything that Anabaptists aspired to be. It became and it's remained much treasured. He's still celebrated in his hometown. There's been a novel about him. This image in particular has become ubiquitous amongst Anabaptists, endlessly recycled. Indeed, so familiar that it's spoofed affectionately as well as revered. This statue to him was erected in Canada only a couple of years ago. It's a sign of how well the Martyr's Mirror tradition has endured amongst Anabaptist communities. A German language edition of the book was published in Pennsylvania in 1749. It was the largest book published in pre-revolutionary America. An English edition eventually appeared in 1837. For generations, it was the book, along with the Bible, that Mennonites and others claiming the Anabaptist heritage aspired to have in their homes. It was, and still is, often given in Mennonite households as a wedding present. A little gruesome for that occasion, you might think, but a marker of what it meant to be a Christian home and to pass that memory on to the next generation. It's still in print, along with various abridged versions and study guides. Since that first age of persecution ended, these communities have treasured these stories and the identity of peaceful, blameless suffering that they've given to them. They've not used those stories to foster hatred or revenge, but to teach the community that this is what their faith means. It is perhaps one of the most harmless things one can do with an atrocity story, and I hate to cast a shadow on it. But even this can have a poisonous consequence. In this sense, if your community's identity is built around the unjust sufferings that your forebears innocently endured, 
then you may be inclined to write out the parts of your history which don't fit with your myth, or even to take your own status as persecuted innocents so much for granted that you don't consider the possibility that sometimes the jackboot may be on the other foot. In modern times, various inheritors of the pacifist tradition of the Radical Reformation have been less assiduous in adhering to that than they may wish to remember. In Britain during the First World War, a great many Quakers refused to bear arms, or in some cases to serve in the military at all as a matter of conscience. That was their legal right. Nevertheless, many of them suffered considerable victimization and in some cases lengthy terms of imprisonment as a result. That witness is now celebrated by British Quakers. The fact that more than half of the Quakers conscripted by the British army during that war nevertheless chose to serve in arms is forgotten. American Quakers rightly celebrate how, thanks to them, the United States has permitted conscientious objection since its founding. They tend not to celebrate the most recent Quaker president of the United States, that famous peacenik, Richard Nixon. The Seventh-day Adventists, another more recent radical Protestant grouping of American origin, which is also nowadays firmly committed to pacifism, nevertheless in its early days, sent a substantial number of its young men as volunteers for the Union Army in the American Civil War. As it seemed to them, that was a struggle whose righteousness meant that scruples about violence could be, must be set aside. In the First World War, the Seventh-day Adventists in Germany split bitterly over the subject. The majority deemed patriotism more important than peace. Even the Mennonites, the original radical pacifists, were not immune. In 1929, persecution of German-speaking Mennonites in Soviet Ukraine sent over 10,000 refugees fleeing west. The cause of these innocent, suffering Germans was taken up by the ascendant Nazi party, who were quick to point the finger at what they called Judeo-Bolshevism. They managed to persuade the German government to accept 4,000 of the refugees. A series of films depicting their sufferings were made from 1933 onwards, as in this 1941 re-release of a film originally made in 1935, now retitled The Village in the Red Storm. The posters make a contrast between the stoic Aryan villagers and their persecutors that hardly needs to be explained. Naturally, under these circumstances, some Mennonites went beyond mere gratitude to their protectors, to willingness to fight against the, form, the forces of godlessness that threatened to overwhelm all of Christendom. This is a rare photo of an all-Mennonite squadron in the Waffen-SS. When the Nazis occupied Mennonite-majority towns in Ukraine in 1942, they were greeted as liberators. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian Jews were murdered near the Mennonite settlements. I don't mean to imply that the Mennonites share disproportionately in the blame for these atrocities, simply to say that if you always think of yourself as the innocent victim, you can lose sight of the possibility that in another time and another place, you may also be guilty. And that brings us to our other, our final set of atrocities. During the 16th and early 17th century, a few thousand Europeans were executed for heresy. 80% or more of the victims were men, and those killings were vigorously contested at the time, for and against. But during the same period, perhaps 10 times as many people, somewhere between 50 and 100,000, were executed for a very similar crime, witchcraft. But in this case, around 80% of the victims were women. And at the time, not much more than a murmur was heard about it. Yet these neglected killings have resonated louder and louder down the centuries, to the extent that nowadays they seem to us a defining event of the era. This long-ago collective atrocity has become an important part of our culture. The story of the atrocity that is the great witch hunt, to use a contentious term, 
is a story about us as well as about them. Europeans had for centuries before this believed that some people were witches. That is, that they harnessed supernatural powers to harm others. In the medieval era, this witchcraft was usually understood as happening on quite a small and local scale. It was often associated with marginal, misfit figures in rural communities, cranky, malevolent or eccentric loners, often poor or elderly, people who had very little real power or security, and who therefore might find it useful, even appealing, to attract a reputation for uncanny powers. After all, if a beggar woman comes to your door, you might well turn her away. But if you believe that she's a witch, then you probably won't dare. For her, this was a dangerous game to play because the church did not approve of magic, malevolent or otherwise. But nor did it generally pursue such characters with any particular zeal. Most of them could expect to die in their beds. Most, but not all, of these so-called witches were women. In parts of Scandinavia, male witches were more common. We still don't really understand the origins of this pattern in which witchcraft was seen as predominantly but not exclusively female. It's, of course, the mirror image of the situation with most mundane crime. That itself may be a clue. Malicious men were assumed to inflict harm on people through physical violence, whereas women, it was thought, needed to be more creative. You can link this to the fact that the stereotypically female means of committing a murder in this period was poison, which, like witchcraft, required cunning and knowing your way around a kitchen rather than bodily strength or physical courage. But until the late 15th century, witchcraft was rarely dealt with by the law and very rarely led to execution. Legal interest and the rate of killing then began to climb, and in the 16th century, both of them skyrocket. The peak of witch hunting was the late 16th and early 17th centuries, and it was very unevenly spread. Both Catholic and Protestant territories did it. They used different theological justifications to reach similar results. But some territories, like Spain, saw very little witch hunting. These tended to be places with strong, centrally managed legal systems, which were good at resisting local pressure. Even England falls into this category, a place where there were certainly hundreds of witchcraft executions, but probably less than a thousand over the entire period. And the acquittal rate of those who were accused under the various English witchcraft acts was over 80%. This reflects the persistent legal problem that it is difficult to prove that somebody is guilty of an imaginary crime. The fact that the only real mass witch hunt in England took place in the midst of the Civil War of the 1640s proves the point. At that stage, the central legal system was breaking down. Other places took a much darker turn. These tended to be small or decentralized territories whose courts were liable to be overwhelmed by political or popular pressure. For example, Scotland, where King James VI's conviction that he and his new wife had survived an attempt to sink their ship with weather magic in 1590, produced a mass purge with the king himself presiding at trials. But the real heartland of the European witch hunt was a strip a hundred or so miles wide either side of the River Rhine, embracing eastern France, western Germany, running all the way from the Netherlands to the cantons of Switzerland, where there were waves of panic about witches who supposedly spread plague. It's in these lands that the mass purges most often took place, where dozens of suspects might be executed together. And those purges had a different flavour from the low-level cases of village malice. At village level, people might be accused of petty harm, like putting a curse on the neighbour's cow. In the mass purges, the charges were more of heresy, of gathering in covens at night to practice foul rituals of devil worship, cannibalism, and, of course, illicit sex. 
It was cases like this where suspects were burned like heretics. In England, by contrast, convicted witches were hanged like common criminals. The fear of this vast, hidden, diabolical conspiracy gripped people who otherwise look like sober, rational and moderate philosophers and jurists. A few individuals spoke out against it, mostly suggesting that it was going too far. Only very rare voices wondered whether witchcraft really existed at all. Exactly why this surge in executions took place at that time and in those regions remains mysterious. But one promising thread of historical explanation is worth mentioning, which is that this story and the story of the persecution of Anabaptists were tied up with each other. Anabaptists were often described as devilish, both for their doctrines and their behavior. Their steadfastness under torture could from the outside look like the devil's work. So did some of their behavior. In Amsterdam, in February 1535, during the height of the Munster crisis, a group of Anabaptists, seven men, four women, burned their clothes in an upper room in Amsterdam and then ran out naked into the street proclaiming woe and claiming to be preaching what they called the naked truth. When they were forcibly dressed after their arrest, they tore their clothes from their bodies. They wanted to be rid of the rags which Adam and Eve had donned in Eden and which symbolized the corruption of fallen humanity. But to outsiders, this looked like a coven of witches. Two years later, a Dutch Anabaptist was burned as a witch. In the records, her crime was initially given as adult baptism, but that was scratched out and replaced with witchcraft. The leap from anti-Anabaptist paranoia to witch panic was all too easy. The Anabaptists' secret meetings didn't help, nor did the persistent rumours about nudity and unconventional sexual morals, rumours that were largely but not completely baseless. Worst of all was the Anabaptists' refusal to baptise infants and their practice of rebaptizing converts, because baptism was, for most Christians, the primary means by which the devil is cast out of an infant. It seemed all too obvious that the Anabaptists were on the devil's side. It fit neatly into rumours that witches met at their sabbats to sacrifice and feast on the bodies of the unbaptized babies born from their own depraved sexual excesses. Adult baptisms only made matters worse since everybody knew that the devil forced witches to renounce Christian baptism and to accept his own diabolical parody of it and to have new devil parents instead of godparents. By the mid-16th century, the categories of witch and Anabaptist were becoming blurred. In 1562, in the southern German town of Wiesensteig, a clandestine Anabaptist meeting was discovered. Shortly afterwards, a freak summer hailstorm did terrible damage to crops in the area, and the period's first really major witch panic followed, in which at least 63 men and women were executed, charged not only with weather magic, but also with robbing infants of their baptism. It was a hinge moment. As witchcraft prosecutions accelerated across Europe, so prosecutions of Anabaptists began to dry up. Good Christian people found themselves assaulted on all sides and didn't trouble too much to distinguish one variety of the devil's minions from another. And then quite suddenly it stopped. In the third quarter of the 17th century, witchcraft prosecutions dried up dramatically across Europe. Not because of any change in the law, the old laws tended to remain on the books long after they stopped being used, but because of a change in the climate. It's still mysterious, but it's plain that stories that had once seemed terrifying began to seem ridiculous, and that even as ordinary people continued to believe in witches as much as they'd ever done, lawyers and churchmen were suddenly scrambling to distance themselves from this kind of fanaticism. One freak exception to this proves the rule. The most notorious single episode of witch hunting nowadays is the panic that swept the Massachusetts town of Salem in 1692-3, leading to 19 hangings and at least six other deaths. 
this is the site where the actual hangings took place. One of the reasons that this became so notorious is not only that it was the, the only major panic of this kind in North America, but that by the 1690s, it was an aberration, a grisly fluke event triggered when village tensions had met an unstable local political situation in a colony where secular government had just taken over control from a more theocratic Puritan leadership and was flailing around trying to apply the blunt methods of the law to solve what have traditionally been theological and pastoral problems. But what really sets the Salem trials apart is the response to them. There was open opposition to the proceedings even at the time, some of those opponents being caught up in the purge itself. While the colony's establishment closed ranks to defend the trials, in 1695 a local Quaker published a book denouncing them. When he was put on trial for this, a jury acquitted him. In 1697, Samuel Sewell, one of the judges involved in the trials, publicly apologised for what he'd done. A number of the jurors subsequently did the same, as did some of the accusers, something which, to my knowledge, had never happened following a witch trial before. A trickle of other books followed. Legal petitions to overturn the convictions, which were eventually resisted. But finally, in 1711, nearly 20 years after the fact, 22 of the convictions were overturned by the colony's government and over 500 pounds of compensation was paid to the survivors and to the families of the dead. That didn't extend to everyone. Petitions to extend the pardon were renewed. The matter was only finally fully settled in 2001 when the state's governor proclaimed everyone convicted or suspected in the purge to have been innocent. Long before then, the Salem witch trials had become a cultural touchstone. The list of novels, plays, films inspired by or referring to them is dauntingly long. There are even two operas. In the 1890s, an enterprising Salem silversmith even tried to cash in on the enduring fascination with the story. How successful these were at the time, I don't know, but they sell for about, around $120 each on eBay now. The novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne was born in Salem. His great-great-grandfather was one of the trial judges. Indeed, he was the only one who stood by his actions to the end of his life. Hawthorne changed the spelling of his name. He dropped in the W as a young man in order to distance himself from that shameful history. His famous 1835 story of loss of faith, Young Goodman Brown, is set in the midst of the trials. Elizabeth Gaskell wrote a story about Salem. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a play about it. The trials even surface in the horror stories of H.P. Lovecraft. And of course, above all, in 1952, Arthur Miller's play The Crucible used an impressively close and detailed account of the trials as a polemical metaphor about Senator Joe McCarthy's House Committee on Un-American Activities. The play's been filmed twice, this 1996 version had a screenplay by Miller himself. And as that shows, the play has long outlasted its immediate political context. Miller turned witch hunt into a generic label for fanatical pursuit of an imaginary crime without regard for natural justice, a term which has been embraced with particular enthusiasm by the United States' current president. As his case might indicate, the memory of the witch hunts has now largely been cut adrift from the historical record. This has become a free-floating atrocity of use to almost anyone. To take a slightly more respectable example, here is what the best-selling 2003 novel, The Da Vinci Code, has to say on the subject. I should say I borrowed this from a neighbour. I don't have a copy of it in my house myself. During 300 years of witch hunts, the church burned at the stake an astonishing 5 million women, he says. That is not by any means the novel's most ridiculous historical claim. But notice two things about it. First, the number. He says 5 million witches, a number that is roughly 100 times larger than it should be. But that claim is actually comparatively modest. 
The canonical number of deaths often cited by modern accounts of the witch trials is 9 million, a number first produced by the German Enlightenment philosopher Gottfried Christian Voigt in the course of an argument with Voltaire in the 1780s. Voltaire estimated the number of witchcraft executions at several hundred thousand, which is high, but not a bad stab at the question given the information available to him. Voigt then used some heroic back-of-envelope calculations to question that number. He extrapolated from the 40 executions, which he counted in one German principality in the 1570s and 80s, he assumed that that rate of execution had held constant across the whole of Europe for 11 centuries and produced a figure of 9,442,994 executions. The calculation was ridiculous, but the number stuck, usually rounded down to 9 million. For romantics, for early women's rights campaigners, for many others, the figure was too appealing to question. And maybe the primary reason for its appeal is plain in the other evidently false part of Dan Brown's claim, that these deaths were the work of the Catholic Church, when in fact they were shared by Protestant and Catholic jurisdictions and were usually the work of secular legal systems rather than of churchmen. Given that the best known trials at Salem were plainly the work of Puritans, this recurrent insistence that the witch trials were a Catholic conspiracy is surprising, or rather it's a sign of how much some strains of modern thought want or need to have atrocities which they can hang around Catholicism's neck. This is of course only one of many anti-Catholic myths which this book recycles. The nine million figure was picked up and given fresh respectability by Margaret Murray, the British archaeologist, folklorist and feminist whose theories about the history of witchcraft were widely taken seriously in her time, even though they've subsequently been proven to be entirely baseless. Support for wildly inflated numbers of witchcraft executions also came from Nazi Germany, which welcomed the notion that German women representing authentic Aryan folk wisdom had been slaughtered by a Christian Jewish conspiracy. Cheerleaders pressed the case in books like this one, which repeated the nine million number. The SS, in one of its lesser known activities, actually conducted some of the first thorough research of trial records, incidentally helping to prove that the real number of executions was far lower. Even so, the notion that there were nine million or at least many millions of executions has become one of those zombie statistics that lumbers on no matter how many times it's knocked down which of course is a sure sign that a number has an appeal beyond the merely factual. In addition to its regular use in anti-Catholic or more broadly anti-ecclesiastical rhetoric, the image of the witch as victim was of course most seriously taken up by 20th century feminism. After all, whether we're talking about millions or merely tens of thousands, the execution of enormous numbers of women for an imaginary crime is a fact that deserves feminist attention. The modern scholarship which has traced the deep currents of misogyny behind the phenomenon is of course, of course both correct and hugely important. My point today though is simply to underline how far the witch as a cultural figure has changed. Even in the children's fiction where she's taken refuge, there's been a reversal within living memory. The wicked witch, as the default figure, has vanished. Roald Dahl's Scandinavian inflected version is maybe the last really substantial figure in that canon. And she's been replaced by a succession of comic, even heroic witches. The 20th century's best known wicked witch in L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz had to be reinvented as a heroine in Gregory Maguire's 1995 novel Wicked and the hugely successful musical based on it. In all of this, notice that the gender signification of the word witch has subtly shifted. It was once a predominantly feminine category, but it's now exclusively so, such that in J.K. Rowling's Potterverse, 
witch and wizard are simply used as equivalent feminine and masculine labels. The idea that this label, witch, one which was once shameful and indeed lethal, should be claimed and owned by feminists has been and remained a hugely powerful one. It is not true that the women executed for witchcraft in the 16th century belonged to an underground tradition of female knowledge or to a pre or anti-Christian matriarchal religion, which was systematically targeted by the church. <laughs> Although it is true that if such a tradition had existed, the church would have targeted it. But true or not, the idea is too good to let go of. And in these postmodern times, reinvention is good enough. In 1968, a group of New York feminist radicals formed a group called WITCH. The initials stood for the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. They protested Richard Nixon's inauguration. They disrupted a bridal fair, in part by releasing boxfuls of white mice into the event. They interrupted a Senate hearing on population control. One of their regular campaign chants ran, nine million women burned as witches. If you're a woman, one of their early pamphlets declared, and dare to look within yourself, you are a witch. You make your own rules. A series of local groups calling themselves covens were established. Some changed the meaning of the acronym to more anodyne alternatives, like women inspired to tell their collective history, a name which shows how that imagined past matters which as an organization fizzled out in the 1970s, but a group claiming the name was re-established in Chicago in 2015, often quoting this phrase from a 2015 novel by Tish Thor as the movement's new slogan. The resurgent group has thrown itself enthusiastically into America's culture wars. So as the self-proclaimed witches battle with the man who claims to be the victim of history's greatest witch hunt, historians should perhaps simply accept defeat gracefully and leave the subject to the mythmakers. This is what atrocities are for, to be recruited to fight today's battles. But I can't quite bring myself to leave the many women and the rather fewer men who died for no very good reason to the mercies of modern recruiting sergeants. Women like these, the famous Pendle witches from Lancashire, 10 of whom were hanged in 1612, weren't the active agents of the devil that their accusers thought they'd caught, nor were they secret pagan cultists or political campaigners or proto-feminists or symbols of anyone or anything. What they were, we don't really know. Apparently, a group of people caught up in local family rivalries, swapping accusations, trading in small-scale magic, until a chance series of events caught up with them, and they were killed. They don't owe us anything, nor would they recognise the many ways that we've used their memory. If we want to claim that memory, then I hope we can at least try to remember them rather than merely invent them to suit ourselves. Perhaps even we might be able to let them rest in peace. <laughs>